and welcome to the Science AAAS webinar. This is the first in a series of 12 exciting events that will run over the course of the coming year, intended to address important, timely, and sometimes controversial topics that impact us all, but with a particular focus on the sciences. We will be covering topics including fake science, which will be our topic for next month, scientific entrepreneurship, and mental health in science, among others. My name is Sean Sanders, and I'm delighted to be the moderator in this first event in which we're going to delve into the intriguing topic of the, the science and psychology of success. Today's event is made possible through the generous sponsorship of Foundation Ipsen. So I have a truly fantastic panel with me here in the studio today, and I, I'm going to introduce them briefly and then have each one take a minute or two to tell you what they do and what they bring to this conversation. So just to my left, uh, we have Dr. Albert Laszlo Barabasi, a network science researcher joining us from Northeastern University in Boston, Massachusetts. Next to him is uh, Ms. Jerry Riongi, a serial entrepreneur from Toronto, Canada by way of Kenya. Uh, then we have Dr. Darren Griffin, who researches genetics at the University of Kent in the UK. And finally, Dr. Shruti Naik, who is an assistant professor at the New York uh, University School of Medicine. It's an honor to have you all with us today. So uh, Shruti, maybe I can start with you if you'd like to introduce yourself. Great, thank you for having me here. I'm so um, delighted to be part of this conversation. Um, so as you mentioned, I am an assistant professor at New York University School of Medicine. Uh, I'm an immunologist and my group studies how immune cells drive inflammatory diseases and control regeneration in tissues. Um, and that's sort of the focus of my research, but I think the reason I'm here is because I'm also a millennial scientist who has just started her lab. So I opened, uh, the, the doors of my lab opened about six months ago. And so I'm almost at the beginning of my independent scientific career. Um, and so mapping out what I think is the path to success for my future career and, and some of the lessons that have got me here are hopefully what I can contribute and learn from you heavy hitters next to me. <laughs> Great. Darren? Well, that's the first time I've ever been called a heavy hitter. So um, if I can just add my thanks as well for having us here, Sean. Um, my name is Darren Griffin. I'm professor of genetics at the University of Kent. I'm very interested in the study of chromosomes, uh, all aspects of it, but particularly we're interested in how we can diagnose chromosome diseases in IVF embryos, both in humans and in pigs and cattle as well and also in the evolution of chromosomes. And one of the things we've done quite recently, um, as we just got a little bit of press here, is um, sorting out how the chromosomes of a dinosaur might have looked. I guess the reason why I'm here is that some time ago for my sins, I did a little something on the, that I call the 10 commandments of being a successful scientist. And they include, uh, for instance, the first one, the only way to do good research is just to get on with it. Uh, number 10, just be nice to people. Uh, and I believe that some of those might just come up in the, uh, in the course of the conversation. Great, thank you, Darren. Jerry? Thank you. It's wonderful to be here. I'm an entrepreneur and I've had the opportunity to actually double in several sectors and I've enjoyed doing that. I believe that's one of the reasons why I'm here. As an entrepreneur, right now my focus is to identify investors that can invest in Africa. I run a fund out of the Cayman Islands, although the management company is out of uh, Toronto. And I'm also very excited about the, the future of Africa. African Union is actually focused on bringing together the African continent with one currency, one passport, and a trading bloc, which is quite exciting for me. And I quite looking forward to hear what it is that we are going to talk about in respect to success. And I'm very, very excited about this conversation. Great. Thank you so much, Jerry. Laszlo. Hello there. My name is Laszlo Barabashi, and I'm, I'm a network scientist and a physicist. Occasionally, I define myself as a data scientist from Transylvania. <laughs> and uh, what I've been doing in the last 20 years with my lab is to try to understand the structure of large networks from social networks, how we are connected on the internet or through friends or professionally, all the way to the molecular networks within our cells that kind of ensure our very biological existence and whose breakdown leads to disease. And part of my lab, together with Harvard University, is really trying to understand how net breakdown of networks lead to human diseases and how do we cure that. But in about 10 years ago, we started to ask a different question in this context. How do networks really empower us or how they pull us back? That is, if you are a node in the network, how can the network contribute to your success or occasionally your failure? 
This has led to a wide range of research within my lab and has also resulted in a book that I just published a few months ago called The Formula, The Universal Loss of Success. So I'm looking forward to talk today with all of you about how these ideas and the laws of success that we uncovered in, uh, uh, in my lab kind of match with the experiences we all had. Fantastic. So um, I'd like to start off, um, I think, by just asking each of you how you measure success in your own lives. Um, Laszlo, since you're doing the scientific analysis, I think I'm going to come to you last and see if you know how things fit together from what the other panelists have said. Um, but um, Jerry, maybe we can start with you and if you could talk a little bit about um, how you measure your own success. Um, what yardsticks do you use? Is it personal? Is it cultural? And we've actually already had a, a question where somebody was asking about whether they should keep some kind of notebook um, on their goals and their successes. Could, could you talk to that? Yes, I, I, I'd love to. I found that um, from the age of 19, I'd every year come up with a plan of action for what I wanted to achieve that year. And I found that by doing so, I was able to have a very clear understanding of the things that were of interest to me and those things that were not of interest to me. So along the year, I would focus on those activities. And I didn't achieve every single one of them, but at least I felt that I had achieved something by the end of the year. I believe that success is actually based on how you're improving yourself year on year. So I benchmark my success based on the things I have done and how successful I have been at those things based on the outcome of the performance of the work that I was doing along that period of time. Mm -hmm. And I also realized that uh, the yearly goals were not sufficient after I got a little older and I started to have five yearly goals or even at some point I actually decided to do a 50-year plan. Mm -hmm. And I'm very pleased with the outcome so far based on my personal success. Great. Yeah. Thank you. Darren, let's uh, go to you. So in uh, academic science, we they tend to metric the heck out of us mm -hmm. uh, and all sorts of things that get, get looked at. So for instance, how much um, grant money have we brought in? Uh, how many people are in our lab? And obviously, none of the research that we can do uh, is possible without all the very talented people in, in, in all, of, all of our laboratories. Um, so how many people do, do we have currently that, w that we're working uh, with or working under us? Um, the quality and number of publications that we have, and obviously Science Magazine is, is one of the places that we, uh, that we aspire to be. But I think one of the important things to, to, um, to get across is that perception is reality. Uh, in my head, I'm a very good singer, but people who hear me sing um, don't necessarily think so. So it is important that you try and look through the, through the eyes of other people and how you are seen and perceived. And I think if you can do that, you're going a long way towards success. Mm -hmm. Fantastic. Shruti. So I, uh, this message of mindfulness, whether it's intrinsic uh, introspection or whether it's uh, understanding how other people perceive you, I think is really key to my definition of success. So. Uh, not taking a sort of laissez-faire approach to life. Um, I think the word luck is thrown around a lot when we mm -hmm. when we talk about successful people. Um, and, and the truth is you don't just stumble upon it. I think if you're mindful and you plan out your trajectory, uh, whether it's in the professional arena or your personal arena, because I think both facets of your life are, are important to integrate into your definition of success. Mm -hmm. um, I think that is what's really important on the road to achieving success. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that's what Great. I think. Great. So what I'm hearing from, from both Jerry and you is an intentionality to your goals and, and how you would measure success. Mm -hmm. Precisely. Yep. It is important to reflect. I mean, t tomorrow morning I'll be chairing a meeting um, in which we, my, my lab and related labs will, will go through our year and, and just take a look at all the things that, that we've done. I think this idea of setting yourself some goals, and Jerry's absolutely right, you don't have to achieve them all, and sometimes you exceed them. Um, but just keeping an eye on that, and um, if you're not achieving your goals by and large over, uh, over a number of years, then it might be start, um, time to start thinking about, well, this is how the world sees me, and maybe I just need to make a bit of a change. Mm -hmm. So, Leslie, let me come to you and see how the, what the panelists have said fits in with the research that you've done. Oh, this is actually fabulous because the panel has touched upon the, the elements of how we think about success. Mm -hmm. So when we started doing this research in my lab, the first question was really how do we define success? And one of the things we learn, of course, in school is that performance generates success, right? This is why we go to school, this is why we exercise, this is why we train. 
but then what's really the difference between the performance and success? And what we realize is that we have to very clearly distinguish the two. So in our lab, we define performance as things that you do. The research papers you write, uh, the, the people you hire in your lab, the companies that you actually start, uh, and the actions you take actually to, to make that uh, company successful. That is, performance is really what your actions are. Success, however, is what the community observes acknowledges and eventually rewards you for that performance. In other terms, your performance is about you, but your success is about us. That is the community that really provides those measures of success. And those measures of success could be citations to your research papers, could be grant money, could be uh, the income and the number of consumers your company acquires, or, or could actually even have access to the right journals to publish your work as right. a young faculty. Uh, so, and, and what, of course, one of the things we talked about and the panel talked about is how mindfulness and improving ourselves is important to success. And in our definition, that's also important, but it's part of the performance piece. That is that you need to be mindful about your goals. You need to have your checklist. You need to kind of strive to become better and better what you do so you put a better performance on it. But what we often talk much less about it is that how does that performance turn into the community's acceptance and success? In a way, this is the reason I ended up writing this book, The Formula, is to explain to people that there are laws and patterns that really govern that translation and performance doesn't always automatically translate mm -hmm. into success. Mm -hmm. So if I could rephrase that, what I'm hearing is we can control our performance, but we can't necessarily control success, although it seems like there are some rules that we can maybe follow. Is that right? That, that is correct. <laughs> I mean, certainly we should have control about our performance, right? And mm -hmm. that's the definition of the performance. But the question is really, when and how it translates into the community's acknowledgement of that. Mm -hmm. And one of the things we learned by doing this research is that performance, human performance is inherently bounded. That, that ev it means that you know, if you look at Usain Bolt, who is the fastest man on earth, he's not running 10 times faster than I do, and I'm, the, and I'm not a good runner. Mm -hmm. And most important, when he wins a competition, he's a percent faster than the one who loses that we don't remember at all. Mm -hmm. So, and this is not only about running. Every area where we can measure performance in a somewhat objective way, we find that performance is bounded. That is, there are very little differences between the individuals, particularly at the top. Now, in sports, we have a unique situation because we have chronometers. So mm -hmm. we can accurately measure how fast someone runs. But most of us around this table and in our life, we actually live in areas where we lack a chronometer to accurately measure performance. And when you are unable to measure performance accurately and you are faced with a number of individuals who are performing fabulously, but you only can reward one or two for success, the question is mm -hmm. how that process happens. Mm -hmm. And really, our research is about understanding the patterns that turn in when I'm unable to say who is better at what you do at your job. Mm -hmm. Great. So, Darren? Yeah, I mean, I uh, really echo all the things that Laszlo says there. It's, it's more about uh, just having a think about how the world sees you. Mm -hmm. um, everybody can see that Usain Bolt has just got that little bit ahead of, um, of, of everyone else, sometimes a long way ahead mm -hmm. of everyone else, but it's, it's not to say that all those other people, they, they're, they're on merit as, as well. Right. Um, so, and I think it, it's often, yeah. um, often setting your own goals and your own boundaries. So, um, as a, for instance, I'm not a particularly good runner either, but I'm going to try very hard to um, to get round a half marathon in under two hours. And for me, that will be personal success, and it's nice to talk to your friends about that. I'm not going to win any prizes for that, but it'll give me a lot of satisfaction. So, you know, it, it's um, it's partly, as Jerry was saying, an internal thing and re reflecting and, and what goals do you um, do you want to set yourself, mm -hmm. and then perhaps just um, using that. Um, journey, if you like, and to enjoy the journey, just to make that a little bit better mm -hmm. and getting a lot of self-fulfillment as, as a result. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That actually brings me nicely to the second question that I had, which is how, what benchmark should we use? And Shruti, I'm going I'm to come to you as, a, as a, a scientist starting off a lab. Is Do you compare yourself to Nobel Prize winners? Is that where you want to get to? <laughs> no, no. <Yeah. laughs> um, I think that's a, that's, a, that's a surefire way to always be disappointed. Um, 
Yeah, so I think here, you know, there is a personal definition of success, which we discussed with introspection and mindfulness, and then your professional goals or your professional benchmarks mm -hmm. or what you aspire to be professionally. Um, you know, in thinking about what, what Laszlo said and the idea of performance versus success, how do I um, convey my achievements to the community and how do I get the community to recognize those achievements as important, impactful, um, integrated into our scientific understanding? And um, I think those are sort of the key things that I think about often. So performance, you know, do the most rigorous science possible, um, write grants all the time, I'm realizing, <laughs> as, a, as, a, as a starting out PI, uh, train scientists. But then going a step above and conveying those efforts to the community through my findings. Mm -hmm. And this is where I think, uh, you know, really getting um, some PR skills mm -hmm. is in, comes in handy because a lot of that has to do with communicating your findings. A lot of that has to do with mm -hmm. advertising your findings. A lot of that has to do with uh, working with the community to integrate your findings and move forward. Mm -hmm. um, I think those are sort of key steps to other people recognizing your accomplishments. Mm -hmm. I think there's never been a, a more important time to communicate science clearly. Mm -hmm. right. um, I can still remember the time where you know scientists were seen living in an ivory tower and, and mm -hmm. producing things that only three people in Cambridge could understand. And, mm -hmm. and those days are long gone. You really need to get out what we do in an accessible way. We have a, a younger generation to inspire. Mm -hmm. um, we want uh, younger people to be aspiring to be, to be scientists and thinking that's really cool and, and, and so on. Um, but yeah, just, just being able to explain what you do in an accessible way to so people in the bar or um, you know, in the coffee shop or whatever, I think it's hugely important. Right, and before actually we kind of get away with the idea that PR is necessary for success, let <laughs> us return to the basics. That's mm -hmm. not what the data shows, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. This is a fabulous event, and I'm really glad to be part of this. It will have zero impact on my recognition as a scientist within the scientific community. Here we're talking to mm -hmm. a much wider audience. I have written several general audience books, and I know that I'm talking to a completely different audience, and that has very little impact on my right. uh, how I acknowledge as a scientist. And there is data even showing that, that people who give TED Talks, scientists who give TED Talks, where millions of people viewing their talk, mm -hmm. had that event has no impact whatsoever right. on the citations or their scientific recognition. Mm. So I think it's very important for us, for scientists, to communicate our finding to the, to the wider community. But I also want to be mindful of the fact that that has absolutely no impact in our recognition as a scientist, in our work as a scientist, and that's mm. not the type of PR that would lead you towards the Nobel Prize. No, no, mm -hmm. I agree. So, so perhaps mm -hmm. I was not very clear. So I, this is a different kind of PR, yes. right? This is us advertising science mm -hmm. in general, yes. um, our understanding of science in general. But um, I think there is a scientific kind of PR mm -hmm. where you promote your work in the scientific community sure. um, and write about your work mm -hmm. or talk about it mm -hmm. at conferences oh, or yeah. get together in these consortia and, mm -hmm. and work with teams. And I think that kind of PR is equally mm -hmm. important mm -hmm. yes. um, for promoting your ideas and your findings. Because right. I think if you don't mm -hmm. voice them, they disappear. Right. Yes, yes. Jerry, let me come for your comments. Yeah, so I'm going to try and give an experience that I, I had in, in, in August of you know, 2009. So I get an email, and it's from someone from Forbes. They want to do an article on me. Mm -hmm. They want to query certain points, meaning they've already done their research, mm -hmm. but they want to confirm certain things for me. And of course, I respond and I say, and I don't really want to talk about a particular subject, so focus on my professional, which they did. And what I'm hearing in this discourse is PR to promote the actual perhaps data points. And I'm wondering whether, in my experience anyway, they were reaching out to me because of the impact within the community, within the marketplace, within the economic strata, i.e. Mm -hmm. the internet connectivity was producing a particular mm -hmm. outcome. Mm -hmm. And that activity is what I was being recognized for. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I really wonder whether when we say PR, and, and I, I actually, after the Forbes article, I had to actually put in place a PR mechanism to manage the outflow of what came out of that. Mm -hmm. yeah. but, but even then, I was cognizant of the fact that we need, I, I always have to be careful what is it that we are actually projecting into the marketplace mm -hmm. based on PR, because you could actually be out there for all the wrong reasons. Mm -hmm. and, and I'm, I'm actually you know, thinking that 
from a scientific scientific perspective, I think the tangible activity of work mm -hmm. of something that has been re resolved in the marketplace mm -hmm. would probably add more value mm -hmm. than pure mm -hmm. just research. I'm, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm just thinking top mm -hmm. of mind. And there are many examples of people who have become famous for mm -hmm. things they didn't necessarily want to be famous for. Mm -hmm. That's yeah. right. Yeah. right. So yes, but if I may, I mean, of course, fame is one definition of success, and, mm -hmm. and I don't think it's a good definition of success, <laughs> yeah. by the way. Yeah. And you can be a very accomplished, very successful scientist, for example, right. with zero fame. Mm -hmm. uh, but, but actually, the, the discussion we're having uh, has very deep roots in the science we do because the question is when does performance matter like your company's performance mm -hmm. and when do other effects that we call PR turn in and the way we actually kind of define this and this is exactly the first law in my book is that you know performance determines success but when performance is not measurable then networks determine success now, this actually requires some qualification because we live in the world where we're told that you have to network all the time. But what our research shows is that it's not the mindless networking that is important, but understanding the underlying network that reward, uh, that govern reward within that particular community. And for example, we have, a, uh, we have done a major research published by Science mm -hmm. uh, on, on, actor, uh, on, on, on the success of artists which is a particular area where art is almost impossible to quantify in terms of performance because is this actually a glass of water or an artwork? Well, over here is a glass of water, but if you see it in a national gallery just two blocks away, then it's actually a, a, an invaluable artwork, right? And, and so, so in art, performance is inherently unmeasurable, and then we saw that actually if you map out the almost invisible institutional networks of who decides where do you have to be before you get to MoMA or to a National Gallery, that becomes hugely predictive of individual success in art. So let me generalize, and I would say that, that in each profession, there is a network that really matters. Mm -hmm. And it's not simply knowing everyone, but understanding the underlying forces that eventually govern success. And it's different in mm -hmm. academia, very different in art, and very different in entrepreneurship. I think you've hit on a point there. It's, it's um, empathy with your audience yes. um, <laughs> is hugely important. So if you um, want to measure your success by how much grant money do you raise, mm -hmm. you have to get into the minds of the people who are making the decision <laughs> right. um, and persuade them to give you money. Now, mm -hmm. getting a grant is binary. You, mm -hmm. the, you either get um, whatever it is, $300,000, mm -hmm. or you don't. Mm -hmm. And uh, if you're one point off the cutoff point, then you, you're, you, know, you don't get money in that all there is to it. Um, similarly, if you uh, if you want to be uh, an effective public communicator of science, mm -hmm. then you've got to get out to the general public. Mm -hmm. um, if you uh, if you want to impress the people um, in your particular field, mm -hmm. then you've got to write to them. And um, I think this is one thing that's often very lacking uh, mm -hmm. in in people who are, are very dissatisfied with their degree of success. That uh, it's not always getting into the mind of um, of the people who are judging them. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Good point. Shruti? So I, I really could not agree with you more about the networks, mm -hmm. and this is becoming more and more clear to me as I move up in my mm -hmm. career, that there is this invisible network of people that are the decision makers mm -hmm. in our community. Mm -hmm. I, and I suspect in any community, because mm -hmm. I suspect the business world is like this also, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. The people who decide not only what grants you get, what awards you get, who, who goes to the prestigious meetings as speakers. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so, so um, I guess for me, it's performance and then visibility of that performance, mm -hmm. right? So how do you increase visibility of that performance amongst mm -hmm. these right people? How do you get to acknowledge that performance? Right, really exactly. Big. Like get mm -hmm. other people to acknowledge your work as That's important. It. Right. Um, and I think there are tangible ways of doing that. Mm -hmm. um, I think, you know, starting with communication, mm -hmm. the first is putting yourself out there and being comfortable with taking ownership of mm -hmm. your accomplishments. Yes. Mm -hmm. And of but course, that's not easy. Sorry. 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 Mm -hmm. That's not easy to do in science because science has actually a positive kind of selection towards people who really focus on their trait, right? I grew up coming from Eastern Europe saying that if I do the right science, I will be successful. Mm -hmm. And it took me many years of understanding that is not that simple, including my personal experience of how when at 27 years I became the, uh, I got my first faculty job, I had the 
the pulpit to actually teach students and to be a faculty, but I didn't have the courage to reach to one of my colleagues out who was a luminary in my field and ask him a question because I was so nervous and yeah. so introvert. Mm -hmm. so, so one of the challenges we have in science, since we're actually talking here about success in science, is that how do we trade the young generations that, that it's not enough for you to put that fabulous performance on the table mm -hmm. and publish that great paper, you need to formulate the paper in a way that the community understands what are you up to, and you need to reach out to your colleagues and you don't have mm -hmm. to nervous about it, right. uh, uh, and uh, so that people acknowledge that you are the one who did that work. Mm -hmm. I, I, think, I, think that, I think he's kind of tapped into what I was thinking of uh, top of mind, mm -hmm. because it's one thing to get the grant mm -hmm. and to actually get the work on the research, and I'm really emphasizing how about the next piece? What's mm -hmm. the outcome? Mm -hmm after that process mm -hmm. in the marketplace? Mm -hmm. What are we benefit? What are we actually receiving as a tangible benefit mm -hmm. with the research in, in science mm -hmm. uh, that we can actually um, put our fingers and our thumbs mm -hmm. to? So mm -hmm. I think to me, that is the test of time, right? right. If, does your finding stand the test of time? Right. Is it integrated into mm -hmm. our understanding of how biology or physics or networks or mm -hmm. chromosomes or immunology works? And can we move the field forward? Right. Mm -hmm. Is that really a true finding? Right. Mm -hmm. um, and when you get the field to accept that, I think that is a form of success, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. right. mm -hmm. and, and in the business world, it's how successful your company is and whether exactly. your company is long-lasting right. and, and, and yeah. doing good. Yes. Basically, well. you, you have to be able to show the track record right. year on year right. when it comes to the company. Right. Yeah. So I'm going to pivot slightly um, and just put out a question from one of our viewers that asks, um, Essentially, if you've had years of rejections and failures, um, when is it time to think, okay, I'm not going to be successful in this track? Mm -hmm. And together with that, I'm interested in knowing where, how much does fear play a part in success and how we measure our success? You know, can we get caught up in that, that fear of failure that doesn't allow us to drive forward? So, uh, Jerry, I'm going to come to you because you, well, you mentioned that you're not always successful in all of your goals. So. How do you keep a positive attitude in the face of maybe rejection or you, you don't get uh, the funding or the, the, the money that you were asking for? Um, it's a very good question. I think that in most cases, we uh, entrepreneurs have a particular skill set, mm -hmm. a thick-skinned mm -hmm. skill set, <laughs> so that if they're passionate about a particular idea, they will push that idea as far as they possibly can. And I think the, the entrepreneur who essentially becomes successful is the one who pushes all the way to where they need to push the pendulum, if you like. But along the way, they're able to, in a very interesting way, weave through and change the idea and perhaps reorganize their thinking to a point where maybe they'll pivot into something different, but still working towards the end goal. Mm -hmm to keep them living, because you have to sort of, you know, keep the lights on, you have, you have to continue to coexist and exist in the environment. But I think to me, uh, fear will always show up in many ways, but I believe that if you know what you're talking about, if you know what you're trying to achieve, and you, you have uh, from time to time some quick wins, then you stay on course. But a time will come when you have to say to yourself, this is no longer working and then mm -hmm. do a real pivot mm -hmm. and do something else. And I think for me, the success therein is your ability to say, it's time out mm -hmm. and let me now do something else. So that's how you show up with another idea mm -hmm. and hopefully that other idea will, will take mm -hmm. off and, and be something that's yeah. worthwhile. I'm tempted to say that if, um, if you have a fear of failure, there are an awful lot of wonderful things you can do with your science degree that doesn't involve becoming an academic scientist because it is a life of rejection uh, right. in, in that itself. sense. The, the, the vast majority of grant applications that are written are not funded. Um, mm -hmm. And you know, if you have a, a funding body that's up to 20%, mm -hmm. then if you're batting at 30%, then you're being successful. But that still means that um, more than half of your grants are are being re rejected um, and science a science degree will open you off open the world of all sorts of different careers it doesn't necessarily involve um, doing the, the deaf things that we do and chase after grants um, so I think you know and, and again one of the commandments I'd throw in here is uh, number seven if, if, if the system isn't working for you um, you've basically got three choices you can either do your, your, the, the heck out of it just to change it 
or um, do something else or don't complain. And, and really, it, it is very simple on, on that score. So you know, by all means, have a go at, at doing it. But if it isn't working for you, then those are the things that are ahead of you. And um, if you have a fear of failure and you're going to be absolutely wound up every time a grant is, is rejected, then being uh, an academic isn't for you. Maybe not the right yeah, thing. Yeah. Yeah. Right. right, Trudy, do you have a comment? Um, yeah, I just want to sort of maybe echo some of the things that you guys were saying. I think there's really two qualities, in my opinion, that determine your longevity in science, but I suspect in any environment, in environment yeah, any hard-hitting environment, it's your resilience and your malleability. Yeah. Um, you know, we always think about rocks as strong objects, but actually Plato is the strongest because it molds, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And so you kind of have to be like Plato. Um, I, I don't know any scientist who hasn't failed. I, not a single one. Even the most successful Nobel laureates have failed. You know, so I think that is something that you either embrace or you pick something else to do mm -hmm. that makes you happy. Yes. Mm -hmm. If I may start with a personal story, uh, mm -hmm. I, when I finished my PhD, I joined IBM as a postdoc. And r like two months after I joined, I had this great idea that I should be studying networks. Now, no one was studying back networks. I was so excited about it that within three months, I wrote my first paper. This was mm -hmm. 1994. I submitted to science, to nature, mm -hmm. to physical review, uh, to about five different journals, and everyone rejected it. And no one said that the paper is wrong. The question was behind the referee reports was always, why do we care about networks? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And this could have been the end, right? Because I could not publish anything in that space for five years. I ended up getting a faculty position, <coughs> building up my group in material science, what I was doing before, but yet on the side, I was doing networks and submitting papers. Mm -hmm. It wasn't until 1999 that I was able to publish my first paper on networks in science that eventually became the decade's most cited paper within the journal. Mm. So, <coughs> so I, you know, I had five years of rejection and rejection and failure and failure. But I was convinced during these five years that networks are so important that I must stick to it and must continue mm -hmm. doing it. So I think this is sometimes we lose track in science that yes, we tend to adapt to the market, but you know, like where the funding is and so on. But if you're convinced that you hit across an idea that is really crucial for you, you got to go after that even if you're getting rejection after mm -hmm. rejection. Yeah, absolutely. I've, I've been wanting to uh, publish a paper on dinosaur chromosomes for years and years, and we finally did it last last year, and uh, it was so rewarding to, to be able to, to do that. And, and then equally so um, that um, it was picked up by by a very good journal, and, and also eventually uh, it went around the world with the, with the press. So, you know, um, these things are very, very worth chasing, and uh, sometimes you have to just find the right time and when your audience is ready for it. Mm -hmm. So I think this is a good time to, to go back to a question from one of our viewers. Um, and this was, this was directed at you, Laszlo, but I think it definitely ties in with what we've been talking about. Um, uh, so I'll read the question. Do you distinguish disruptive from non-disruptive success? Mm -hmm. um, and they say, meaning the difference between success that is encouraged by people in current successful networks and success that is achieved despite them. Mm -hmm. um, so what, what are your thoughts on that? And, and Jerry, I also want to come to you because you've, you've stepped into a business in, in Kenya creating this internet business that nobody had done before, and it seemed an obvious thing to do. Mm -hmm. um, but you, know, you, you were probably swimming against the tide mm -hmm. in that. So, so I'll come to you in a second, but Laszlo, if, if we oh, could right. yeah, talk with so you to that. So I, I totally agree with the viewer. There is a fundamental difference between them. And I, for example, I would consider our network work is, was the case, which we did it despite the network, mm -hmm. in a sense that for five years, the community didn't say what we're doing is wrong. They just said it just doesn't fit into the paradigm that what we care about scientifically. But Sometimes these disruptive ideas are the most important to science rather than carrying the paradigm further. Mm -hmm. And you can actually even see it. We study these type of things. And you see in the, in the way, for example, the impact happens. Let's take, for example, the paper that science published a year after our network paper on the Genome Project, the Venter-Otonfagos mm -hmm. paper, right? What was different between their paper and ours is that 
that paper got most of its impact within the first three years and it's sputtered out, right? Mm -hmm. And ours continued to increase its impact for about 15 years. Uh, mm -hmm. So like it didn't reach the maximum impact for many years. And this is the difference between the disruptor idea, which is building its audience with every single mm -hmm. follow-up paper, versus a paper that is responding to the community's need. Everyone knew that the genome project is important, mm -hmm. but it was also part of the calculation that it will come. And as soon as it came, it became all news. Hmm. Interesting. Jerry? So I'd like to just tell it to you based on how I, my experience is at that time. So we're working in the internet sector, we're working for corporates, there's at least 30 licensed ISPs at the time, mm -hmm. and then we come along and the guys ahead of us knew that we were coming along and we're coming to basically be disruptive. Mm -hmm. We're going to disrupt the marketplace by reducing their price to a fraction. If you were paying $150 for your internet connectivity for the month, we were saying you're going to pay the $150 for a year. So what happened? So we go for our licensing, and our license actually disappears. And two board meetings take place, and our license is not on the schedule. Hmm. And what we did when we actually went in with our application, we got confirmation from the regulator that we had met all the criterias because we wanted to travel to the UK, buy our infrastructure, come back and start building the network. And we were spending um, $200,000 at the time. And when this whole licensing process was disappearing, we'd already started spending the investors' money. So you can possibly imagine we're being thrown out the door and we're already got approval. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so the next thing happens, and the next thing that happens is beyond the license disappearing, our network at some point also gets basically crashed. Mm -hmm. um, so, so we did have a lot of interesting points of contacts that were basically saying, you need to bugger off. Mm -hmm. But we <laughs> stayed strong. Mm -hmm. I spoke to every single person I could. I only didn't speak to the president mm -hmm. to get the license. So mm -hmm. eventually our file of, or, you know, showed up mm -hmm. and we got the approval. Uh, we run the business. And we are now today, out of the 31st licensed operator, we are probably the only IS or only business that has now existed and morphed into a triple play operator in five different countries within the region since. So that's basically to say, mm -hmm. if you know what you're interested in achieving, stay the course mm -hmm. and fight the war mm -hmm. and do it with, with all the smarts that you can. I think that's the best way mm -hmm. to respond. Mm -hmm. right. Yeah. Yes, there's a, there's a horrible American term, stick to it yes. <laughs> which I think <laughs> probably encapsulates. Yeah, I think most of the time you will do something that is non-disruptive. So mm -hmm. pretty much as, um, uh, as Laszlo described is that you, when, when you write a paper, you say a little bit what, what's um, come before, you say a little bit what has not been done, and then you try and convince your audience, whoever that is, that of course you must, uh, this is the next thing, and therefore we did. Um, but it is sometimes fun and really important to do something that is disruptive. And one of the things that you, you often set yourself as a goal is to do something that is paradigm shifting, that mm -hmm. thinks of it in a different way, that really does disrupt. And sometimes these are the hardest papers to try and publish. And I remember one time we had some data that suggested that um, traditional Chinese medicine um, improved the, the semen parameters of, of guys. Um, and had this been anything other than traditional Chinese medicine, if this had been, you know, you go out for, um, uh, and do marathon running for a year, mm -hmm. no one would have batted an eyelid. Mm -hmm. um, but because it, it, it shifted a little bit of something, I mean, eventually um, a, a very lowly sighted journal took it, um, we got it out there, but it was very, very hard work. Mm -hmm. And um, But uh, I, I remember some, someone that I spoke to a little while ago, he's a TV presenter, remembered that, uh, an old colleague from about 20 years ago, and I was chatting to him just a couple of years ago, and he remembered that um, as one of the things that we did at the time. So being disruptive is always something you need to aim for, but equally you do, you do have to pay the bills. By, you know, right. by and large, you, um, you're, you're doing non-disruptive stuff that you're trying to convince people it's obvious and needs to be done. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Great. So I'm, I'm going I'm to move us along because uh, we only have about 20 minutes left of, of our webinar. Um, so we've talked about networking, um, but I'd like to come back to that and talk about specifically about our co-workers. And, and, um, and uh, you've all mentioned people that you've worked with, and Darren, you've mentioned a few times uh, the, 
the great people that you have in your lab. So how important are our fellow workers to our success? Mm -hmm. And I guess our performance as well. So Shruti, since you, you're starting a lab, you're probably looking for, for yes, good people to bring in. Yes, if anyone's looking for a postdoc in immunology. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I think it's immensely successful. I, I, my personal philosophy is islands don't succeed. You're, you're really as good as your team and your community. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it's important on two different levels. So um, a lab, I think, is an organic creature that is really interdependent on the people that are part of it. And so here are your performance, so what your output, your, the grants you're writing, the papers you're publishing, the data you're generating, the findings, are really dependent on the team you assemble. Um, you know, how dynamic they are, how well they interact, you know, and this is where you really draw from groupthink and, and sort of professional, um, how, how teams interact. Mm -hmm. But then there's, a, there's another element that is, I think, key to your success, which is your network, your community, mm -hmm. um, your colleagues that you're interacting with, um, uh, and how they recognize, again, coming back to this idea of visibility, how they recognize your work, how your work is promoted in the field. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, are you being asked to um, speak at seminars? Are you being invited to share your work mm -hmm. um, with the world? Are you, are you sort of, I guess, a thought leader or contributing to um, evolving thought in the field? Um, and that's when your sort of parallel network is really, really crucial. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, Leslie, I'd like to come to you on this question because I know in your, in your book you talk about how groups can, can have good performance, but generally only one person gets the, the recognition. Yes, absolutely. So, so, so this is really, I devoted in the formula two chapters to this issue. One of them is that how do we put the right teams together? And the other one is that how do you get the credit for the, war, for the team's work? Mm -hmm. And you know, what we have to recognize that in science, teams have taken over. That is, before 1990, the highest impact papers came from individual scientists. Since 1990, the highest impact papers are all coming from teams. So it's kind of a way, we, we cannot avoid being parts of the teams. And of course, one question that you actually have to ask, obviously, is how you put your team together now right. that you're starting one. And that's a very important one. And as I discussed in the formula, there are very different goals in mind, whether you need a performance or a success-oriented team, and it's a very different team that you need. Well, and we think a lot about what's the right team. What we often don't think about is that once the team has put a success out, how do you get the credit for the work done? So when there are 35 authors in the particular paper, how do we know whether it's your paper or someone else? Right. And who's going to walk up 30 years later to get the Nobel Prize right. for that paper, right? right? And, and, and it turns out that there is a, the problem with that picture is that when you publish a 30 author paper, I as a reader have no idea who came up with the idea, who did it, who spent most of the time, and whose job was to make sure that the coffee is always warm on the table. Right? So, so given that, then w the, what the community does is that we have rules by which we assign authorship and credit. And these are so strict that we even wrote an algorithm a few years ago by looking at a particular paper, we can assign how much credits they get based on what other papers are co-cited with that. Mm -hmm. For example, if you and I write an immunology paper, it's your paper. Because I have no credits, no previous papers in immunology, right. no one could co-cite those papers with, with that. Your papers would be co-cited. If you and I write a network science paper, you may have come up with the idea. You may have spent all the time doing it. I'm sorry to say, it's my paper. <laughs> <laughs> so, so at the yeah. end, because perform because success is really a, a community-based measure. We're not assigning based on performance, but based on actually perception. And one of the mm -hmm. things that the young faculty or any scientist has to think about it when engaged in a particular project is do I want credit for that? Sometimes you don't. Sometimes I engage in teams where I think this is really interesting work. Mm -hmm. I really don't need any credit, but they need my help and I'm willing to help. Mm -hmm. But if you're at the beginning of your career and you're trying to actually build the credit of the community, you also have to think about it if we achieve what we wanted to do, will I walk away with the credit or someone else would does? And mm -hmm. there are well-defined patterns that tell us and you can follow it and I think we should all pay a little attention to that because that determines our future success. So I, actually, I mean, I totally agree with you on this because I, you know, even as an immunologist, I often collaborate with stem cell biologists, with microbiologists, mm -hmm. And, and, and there is this divvying up of mm -hmm. you know, who's, who, who's really the owner of this work, yes. right? So that 
for me and moving forward in science, how do we change reward structures so this doesn't happen? I think that is something that we need to do to ensure that team-based science continues and that mm -hmm. um, success starts becoming more about the mm -hmm. scientific discovery and not about the individual. Oh, absolutely. Which is not a, it's not a trivial, no, you know. No, not at all. And I don't think, I, I personally think that, that the metrics could be useful and properly used metrics. Right. So not just simply citations and impact factor, but you have to actually consider where field you are coming from, what was your contribution. But I should add another dimension to that. You are in women in science. So what we know is that we as a scientific community don't do a good job actually appreciating women in science. Yes, and we regularly penalize mm -hmm. them through mechanisms that have to do with how credit allocation is done. For example, I talk in the formula about the situation that economists have beautifully shown that if a woman economist collaborates with men, when it comes to tenure, she effectively gets no credit whatsoever for the collaborative work. But if the man collaborates with, or no, but doesn't matter with whom, he gets full credit for that work. Mm -hmm. So like, like in economy, among economists, if a woman works with men as if she would have not done those papers. These are blind sides of the community that we have to change. You know, mm -hmm. We as a community have to recognize that. And if we as humans are not able to recognize, then we have to actually start using metrics in a much more aggressive yeah. and much more objective way and developing the right metrics. I totally agree that, that the current <laughs> metrics are not appropriate. But there are other metrics that the community in the last five, 10 years has developed that start getting much deeper into the story. And they help us to distinguish, actually, the, the true performance from success. My best example, of course, is that until the 1960s, there were no women in the American orchestras, right? <laughs> because they believed that women cannot play classical mm -hmm. music. And it was the Boston Symphony next to my office who first actually put a paravan in front of those who were competing for the job. Yeah. And they hired the first woman who's still alive in Boston, 80-something, and she mm -hmm. can still has a story. But interestingly, still they hired more men until someone realized they also need to put a carpet. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, so these are the blind sides that we have as a community that we need to find in science our carpet and our paravan so that we can really reward women and men equally based on their performance. Mm -hmm. And, and just to clarify, the carpet was so that you didn't hear their shoes because women yeah, wear different yeah, yeah. shoes and yeah, apparently yeah. they yeah. could tell whether it was a man or a woman. Absolutely. So, so this actually brings me nicely to the next point. And Jerry, I'm going to come to you. Um, talking about women in business and women in science, um, I know women feel that they often have to give up something to be successful in science. And that often is their family, time with their family. Um, I mean, we know that women are paid less than men yes. in most areas. So can you speak to that? Do you feel that you've had to give up something? And, and how would you advise um, particularly women who want to go into business um, about how they can manage that work-life balance? A very important question, actually. And mm. my, my personal experience has been that at some point in my career life, mm -hmm. I actually did put time out to focus on the family. Mm -hmm. And this is the truth. And you can imagine if you're working for a corporation or any other organization, when you do that, it changes the pendulum somewhat. Mm. Because then what it's actually doing is that you're falling off the if you like, if there was a list and you are on it, right. and you're part of the grooming of perhaps succession, and you make that sort of decision, then it has, it has a repercussion. Mm -hmm. So I guess when you run your own business, and you're the entrepreneur, then you can make those decisions somewhat differently, I think. And I have had people question whether it's a right decision or whether it makes sense to sort of do the, some of the things that I've done myself. Mm -hmm. And my bottom line is this, Time and the circle of time does actually give every single human being to make a decision and choice about the things they want to achieve, which includes community, family, mm. and, and everything else. Mm -hmm. And I think most people won't even notice that you actually stepped out for a minute as long as you're managing how you step out. This, this would be my response. So I think mm -hmm. women should definitely go for higher positions mm -hmm. and they should actually aim um, to be out there because it's, their not being present is actually causing a problem to how we make decisions globally mm -hmm. as a mm -hmm. community. Um, we're, we're noticing more and more, and, I, and I, I speak particularly for Canada because I've seen what has happened mm -hmm. in Canada when the Prime Minister decided to have 50% 
50-50. The, the cabinet is 50-50, men and 50 women. And, and I think that has been very good for the country because what does that do? It actually, just from a visual perspective, mm -hmm. it forces other people in other quarters to make a difference. And that doesn't mean that it's an easy task mm -hmm. for most, but it just goes to show that I think more of us, when we, when we show up at conferences or when we show up at other meetings, we're, we're talking about diversity. It's become a, a natural conversation mm -hmm. in, in Toronto, at least for me. Um, uh, diversity is a big topic, mm -hmm. and, and we recognize that the lack thereof of that right. diversity engagement is actually detrimental to an economy mm -hmm. and a country. And so. so we need mm -hmm. to actually do something about it. In my own business, at some point, where I was using our psychometric testing tool to hire and recruit, and I found that at some point I ended up recruiting more women based on their scientific outcomes mm -hmm. than men. And of course that was also a problem because at one point I think I had out of a, a group of 10, seven of us were women and everybody was pointing fingers, <laughs> you know what's going on. Yeah. Um, but then I think at the end of the day you recruit based on merit. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think that should always work mm -hmm. at yeah. the end of the day. There are a few things better in this world, being a social situation, professional situation, than gender balance, mm -hmm. I think. And just things work better mm -hmm. when you have, like you say, diversity and gender balance as well. And uh, in, in the biosciences, we have this situation where uh, I think we have a predomin uh, predominance of female postdocs. Um, but when it comes to group leader positions, mm -hmm. it's, um, it seems to go the other way around. It's something that we really do have to address mm -hmm. and change. And it's when people don't necessarily think that they're being biased, but the, the underlying system mm -hmm. is one in which there is inherent bias. And I think there's a lot of that um, in academia, mm -hmm. uh, certainly and in science. And uh, uh, you know, looking at that, addressing it, not pointing fingers necessarily, but just saying, look, come on, there are ways in which we can address this and redress it. And mm -hmm. I think it's, it's hugely important. I feel we do need to point fingers, though. Yes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But not, not all the time, I guess, was my point. Yes, yeah, yeah. Yes, I mean, no, th there are times when, you know, if someone says something appropriate or is clearly behaving in a way that um, mm -hmm. uh, is, um, is somewhat inappropriate, and not necessarily by, by d deliberately being nasty or mean or whatever, but just because of their, their background, whatever, then you're absolutely yeah. right. You do need to point well, a finger. I, I mean, but, you uh, don't have to point fingers to the individual. Yeah. You have right. to point finger, uh, fingers to the mechanisms within mm -hmm. the oh, system yeah. that support so I, I this, think, this you know, we talk about attrition in science. So, yeah. it, so the United States is actually not 50-50 female male postdocs, it's 50-50 yeah. graduate students, yeah. mm -hmm. and then it drops steeply, uh, mm -hmm. and it continues to drop even mm -hmm. from assistant yes. to associate professor and full professor. Mm -hmm. So it's just basically, it's like a steep yes, decline, right? right? Mm -hmm. And um, there are several reasons, I think, for this attrition, and we can talk about you know what the individual can do, but I would love to focus on what the institution can do to foster mm -hmm. success. And by institution, I don't just mean like where they work. I mean mm -hmm. institutions like publications, institutions like mm -hmm. search committees. Institu you know, the, I think these are all institutionalized ways in which we can help mm -hmm. go from this to this. Yes, right. Um, and I think when we talk about success, a really important part of this conversation is how do we have gender balance in success. Yes, mm -hmm. that's right. And this is a very important point because we're just finishing up a big uh, study where we deconvoluted the careers of all scientists from 1900 to till today and distinguishing men and women. And one of the things we learned is that there has been the gender balance in terms of, uh, of uh, percentage of men and women has improved drastically since 1900 mm -hmm. from virtually nothing. From zero to, to from one. From virtually yeah. nothing <laughs> to, you know, 20, 30 percent of what country you look at it. Mm -hmm. But the gender gap in impact has decreased, uh, has increased significantly. So like why actually, you know, in the 1940s and 50s, there was no gender gap in impact, that women and men were actually producing the same impact. Right now, there's a huge gender gap across all the fields and all the mm. countries. So this is one of the things that we have to solve exactly, is that how do we kind of close the gender gap in success? And I think kind of like quantifying what we're trying to do right now, use the tools of data science and network science to really understand the mechanism that is responsible yeah. is one step that we must go through in order to cure these problems. Mm -hmm. So that what, we've, what we've been talking about here are, are systemic obstacles to success, mm -hmm. I think for certain people, at least by some measures of success. Um, I wanted to ask if there are any other um, obstacles, personal or otherwise, that you've recognized in your careers mm -hmm. that have you feel have prevented you from being as successful as, as you could, mm -hmm. as you could be. So I, I'll give you a second to think about that. Shruti, you oh, look sorry. like you're ready. I make a lot of mistakes in my life, so I'm happy <laughs> to talk about them. Um, 
and I, maybe I can start with, the, with a sort of uh, anecdote. So when I started in graduate school, um, I was really, really obsessed with the idea of bacteria on skin and what they did. So I hope there are no germaphobes watching. <laughs> We're covered in bacteria. Um, and at the time, no one was studying skin bacteria and, and sort of how they were talking to our immune system. It was just sort of not on the radar. Uh, and most people were focused on, you know, yogurt and gut bacteria and good bugs in our gut. But I really just could not stop thinking about it. Um, what were these bacteria doing? Like, why were they on our skin? Um, and instead of being brave and asking people if I could, could work on this, I sort of took on other projects, but was never really engaged in anything else. Like, my mind kept coming back to this question. Mm -hmm. um, and I think there was a moment at which I was like, well, I'm just like not happy in grad school. I'm, you know, like maybe science is not for me. And I was ready to quit. And I came across my graduate mentor and was just having a casual conversation with her. Uh, where there were no stakes involved, so it didn't involve any bravery, any pitching, any putting myself out there, any being uncomfortable, and she was like all on board for studying this. Mm -hmm. So, so that was you know serendipity in a in a mm -hmm. in a very unlikely way. And then the idea panned out, and we actually published it in Science, and you know, mm -hmm. and it was cited tons of mm -hmm. times, and you know, we figured it out. But um, I think there, my biggest mistake was not being brave and not sort of pitching the idea to enough people and giving up too quickly. Mm -hmm. I mean, if I had not had that conversation, I would have been not on this panel here today and doing something else, right? And if you had Jerry mentoring you, she would have told you, <laughs> yeah, exactly. stick with it. <laughs> right, but it's such an early stage of your career. So again, right. mentoring is mm -hmm. key at those early stages of your career. It's such an early stage of your career that you have a lot of self-doubt. Mm -hmm. And you are unsure of when your ideas are good and when you can, so mm -hmm. I think bravery uh, and cultivating bravery in yourself mm -hmm. is a key step to, to sort of overcoming a lot of hurdles. Mm -hmm. And your willingness to actually find the right advisor who yeah. can support you that, right? Because we're all busy with our line of research and we cannot support any idea that comes our own way. So that matching is really what the key for graduate school is to find the right person right. that you can work with and pursue this idea, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So. I think one of the, the hallmarks of people who aren't necessarily very successful is they don't always bring mm -hmm. something to the party. So um, mm -hmm. in order to, to receive, you sometimes have to give mm -hmm. first. Mm -hmm. and, and often someone will say, well, can we collaborate on this? And they imagine, because it's the most exciting thing in their head, mm -hmm. it's necessarily mm -hmm. the most exciting thing in the head of the people that they're, right. they're speaking to. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, it partly ties in with what we were saying earlier about uh, networking mm -hmm. as well. When you do that, it is very much a give and take process. Mm -hmm. And um, I've always said that Often, when you go to a conference, you don't go to listen to the talks. You do do the best science in the bar uh, afterwards. Mm -hmm. When you start networking, you start saying, well, I can maybe do this for you. Mm -hmm. You have to do this for me. Mm -hmm. um, that allows you to do all the things that we suggested, like building these mm -hmm. great teams that, that we mm -hmm. often have. Mm -hmm. And um, But just being mindful of this fact that um, someone might just with the best one in the world, as nice a person as they are, mm -hmm. they they don't necessarily have time to do something uh, for you. Um, but perhaps if you've done something for for them proactively, mm -hmm. then that might just work. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And to come back to one of your your rules that you mentioned earlier, mm -hmm. one of your commandments is be nice to people. And be nice to people. And, number ten. And, and it's it's often those people that you are least likely maybe to think mm -hmm. um, have influence. Um, you know, somebody I remember mm -hmm. told me. Every admin assistant you meet, treat them like they're the boss because mm -hmm. they're the ones that get things yes. done. So mm -hmm. I think sometimes one of the obstacles is we, we are, have this tunnel vision of what we need to get done and we forget to mm -hmm. kind of do that networking and do that human interaction. And mm -hmm. I'm very much guilty of that myself. That's right. Mm -hmm. And it's also yeah. fear of rejection, right? Both in the mm -hmm. contacts with the individuals, right? And, and this is probably one of the reasons, well, one of the biggest obstacles that I feel most of us have even though the data doesn't support that, right? If something doesn't succeed, no one sees that, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. It's the success that is visible. Yeah. Yet, we spend most of our time with the fear from failure, right? Mm -hmm. So this is why I always kind of encourage my students and my collaborators, don't worry about failure, because no one will know that you failed. That's true. <laughs> right? yeah. and, exactly. and, you know, like, and this is about the grant application. Right. How many grants you have to write in order to yet get one? No one will actually see except the referees the many failed one, only yeah. the one that you actually got. Mm -hmm. yeah. And everybody says, you're great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> great. Well, unfortunately, I, I think that we're going to have to stop there because uh, we are out of time. Um, so it just remains for me to thank our, our fantastic speakers um, that are, have been here with us today and have been kind enough to take the time to 
to share their knowledge and experience with us. Um, Dr. Albert Laszlo Barabashi, uh, Jerry Rionge, uh, Darren Griffin, and Shruti Naik. Um, a big thanks to uh, our viewers as well for the very interesting and insightful questions you provided. Uh, please do look out for more webinars from uh, Science in this series, appearing monthly at webinar.sciencemag.org. And if you'd like to sign up to receive alerts about upcoming webinars, you can go to the link in the Resources tab just to the right of the video. Uh, this particular webinar will be made available to view again as an on-demand presentation within about 48 hours from now. Uh, we would love to know what you thought of today's webinar. Please uh, send us an email at the address that is now up in your slide viewer, uh, webinar at AAAS.org. Again, thank you so much to our fantastic panel uh, and to Foundation Ibsen for their kind sponsorship of today's educational seminar. Goodbye. Thank you.